so thank you, John and Sherry, and uh, thank you all for serving and for, uh, uh, for those that uh, serve with you, Greg. We are so appreciative of the opportunity we get to worship the Lord. Hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can open up or something that you can turn on, and you will join me in the book of Exodus. Exodus, specifically in chapter 1, is where we're going to be at during our time together in the Word of God this morning. I hope when you came in, you maybe got one of these bulletins. On the back of that, there'll be some word, some uh, notes that'll help us guide us through the Word this morning. So Exodus chapter 1, and then uh, we're going to be mainly focusing on verse 8 down through the rest of the chapter this morning. A couple weeks ago, we started um, looking at Exodus, or specifically the book of Exodus. And then last week, R.J. Stokes was here and blessed all of our hearts, talking out of Matthew about the narrow way and the wide way, and what a blessing that was to have him. And then this morning, we're going to go back to the book of Exodus. One of the things that we, I, I tried to highlight when we were going through the book of First Peter was how First Peter, as he's writing to that early church and to that mixed church, both Jews and Gentiles, he's making the point there, and I put it at the top of your notes, he's making the point out of First Peter chapter 2, that when it comes to this life as a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand, and, the, and the, some of your translations will use different words, but either you're a foreigner, you're an alien, you're a temporary resident, you're just a sojourner. Sometimes we start to think that this world is all there is, and we start to think that this world is the only place we're ever going to live. And so what Peter wants to make the point is, is do you understand that as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of God, this is a temporary place. Heaven, eternity in heaven, is the place that we should be truly living for. The idea that they just sang Give me the bread from heaven and fill my cup till I want no more. It's that thought that even while we are on this earth, we are constantly longing and yearning for that which is to come. So you get to the book of Exodus, and you're like, well, Spence, how does 1 Peter 2 tie into the book of Exodus? Well, the book of Exodus, if you look at the entire book of Exodus from a 1,000-foot, 30,000-foot view, you see that what God is doing is he is setting his people apart. He has them there in Egypt, but the whole book of Exodus is how God sets his people apart, how he shows them what it means to be set apart, and how he leads them to lived set apart. So the whole goal from what we're going to be trying to do as we walk through some of these passages in Exodus is to remind ourselves that we are not alone in trying to figure this thing out. God has given us examples, God has given us models, and God has given us his word to say this is what it looks like to be set apart apart. And some of the times we need to remember that as we're going through this life, this is not all there is. An eternity awaits. I remember for some of you students, I remember sitting there in school and thinking that all of life consists around school, whether it's grade school or whether it's middle school or whether it's high school. And I find myself going, you know what? All of my life resolves around this school. And now 20 years removed, I realize there's a lot more life after High school. And sometimes you get in a job, and sometimes you get in a season of life. And even right now, right now, sometimes with these sweet little black-hearted children that we have in our house, sometimes it's hard to remember that someday, someday, I'm going to miss this. And sometimes we can start living our life forgetful that an eternity awaits everyone. 
And an eternity awaits everyone in this room. And whether it is heaven or whether it is hell, an eternity awaits. So what God wants to do, I believe, and what God shows us through this book of Exodus is what it is like to live set apart. So we looked at a couple weeks ago talking about the legacy and about the legacy that we can build as people set apart for the kingdom of God. And then this morning, I want to look at Exodus 1, verses 8 down through the rest of the chapter. I think it's verse 22. And I want to look at, I want to look at a specific aspect of what it looks like to be set apart. What does it look like to be a foreigner in the kingdom of God? Of God. So, look at verse 8. Moses, as he's writing this, he writes, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them. To afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You might think to yourself, well, Spence, how does this address being set apart? Well, one of the things that you will soon realize as you come to this Christian life and as you pursue faithfulness in this Christian life is that either you will set yourself apart or this world will set you apart. You see, being faithful to the things of God and following after the precepts and the principles of God either will cause you to set yourself, sanctify yourselves from the uh, desires and the, the direction of this world or this world will say, we don't want anything to do with you because you're one of those Jesus people. So either we will set ourselves apart or this world will set ourselves apart. And here in this passage before us, I want you to see two different ways that the Egyptian people, primarily Pharaoh, set these people apart. Because I think these are still two ways that the world treats us today. The first way I want you to see out of this passage that I just read before you is that they will oppose us. This world will set us apart by opposing us. If you look back up there in verse 8, it says, Now there was a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The offense that the Egyptians saw the Jewish people doing is that they were being faithful to God. How do I get that, Spence? Well, you go back, and I put this in your notes. You go back to Genesis 1 and 28, or you go to Genesis 9 and verse 1, and both places God either tells Adam or he tells Noah, go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. John's daughter was saying that she had nine kids. She's got this idea figured out. It's one of these things that you come in and you say, God's calling me to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so that is all they were doing. They were being fruitful. They were filling the earth. If you go back up to verse 7 of chapter 1, what does it say? They were grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them because they were multiplying. They were doing what God was telling them to do, and God was blessing his people. But it never fails when God's people are being faithful to God's word and doing God's things 
There's always someone outside that says, I don't like that. So what is the motivation behind Pharaoh? The motivation wasn't because they were committing sins. It wasn't because they were breaking laws. It wasn't because they were trying to usurp authority. It wasn't because of the fact that they were threatening the, the power structure in place. It was because they were being faithful to God and because God was blessing them. So then what does he do? He says, now here's what we are going to do. We are going to oppress the Jewish people. Oppress the Jewish people. Not because of what they were doing. Not because of what they were saying. But don't miss this. But because who they represented. Because of who they represented. Now where do I get that from? Well, if you look back up there in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You go back and you trace that word out in the original language and you, you will find it goes back to the Hebrew word yada. And it's this idea, not that he didn't know of Joseph. You can imagine the new king, the new pharaoh over Egypt, and he has all these Jewish people, these Israelites. You could ask somebody and says, what are all these people doing down here in the land of Goshen? And no doubt they could say, oh, well, let me tell you. So this guy was in prison for a period of time, and then this pharaoh had a dream, couldn't understand the dream, didn't know what the dream meant. He called this guy out of prison to interpret the dream. The guy interpreted the dream. Everything worked out great. Then we had seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. This guy named Joseph, he was put as second in command of the entire country, made a, uh, made a, a large amount of money for Pharaoh, was really prosperous and uh, did a really good job. And so Pharaoh exalted him. This Joseph, he happened to have a dad and 11 brothers. And he decided to relocate his dad and 11 brothers, 70 people in all, relocated them to the land of Goshen. Jacob actually comes in in front of Pharaoh, blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh knows all about Joseph. Pharaoh knows all about Jacob and his family. And yet, the idea is that this new God, this new Pharaoh, didn't know Joseph. I, I, I liken it to the idea that you look at a young child and you tell the young child, do not touch the top of the stove because the stove is hot. The young child knows the stove is hot because someone told him. Some of us adults in the room know that the stove is hot because we've touched it. There's a difference in how you know something to be true. See, there's some people in this room right now that they know God is faithful because God, they, they, they've gone through the trials, they've gone through the challenges, they've gone through the struggles, and they've seen God be faithful to them. There's some people in this room that they say God is faithful, but they haven't, haven't actually known God is faithful. So here in this text, you see the Pharaoh. And even though he may not have believed in the know, he may not have known about Joseph, no doubt he knew about it, but the problem is, the rub is, is that the people of Israel represented the presence of God. And I realize that may be difficult for you and I this morning to think about, but may we remember that rebellion leads to oppression. Rebellion leads to oppression. What do I mean rebellion leads to oppression? I mean that those individuals in this world that choose to rebel against the authority of God in their lives. When people decide to say, God is not in charge of my life, I am going to do what I want with my life. When they choose to rebel against the authority of God, that rebellion then leads to oppression. Because then what they say is, I'm going to rebel against God and I don't want people around me, around me reminding me of who God is. There are some people that do not go to church 
church today, primarily because they say, oh, well, because of the hypocrites that are there. Well, that may be true, but the vast majority of people that do not come to church today do not come to church today because they don't want to feel convicted by God. And they don't show up. Because every time they show up at church, they're reminded about what God wants from their And that's this rebellion that we see presented here in verses 8 down through verse 14. We see the Pharaoh. We see the king over Egypt. And it wasn't because the people were misbehaving. It wasn't because the people were doing wrong. It was because he couldn't stand the idea of the authority of someone else superseding his. And so he is going to oppose. He is going to put down. He is going to oppress. He is going to persecute anything and everybody that represents the kingdom of God. So that's why he gets there and he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. That is verse 10. And then they start making them bricks. And then that didn't work. And they didn't slow down. And then he says, we're going to make them build these store cities in verse 11. That that didn't work. And that didn't slow down. And then it says at the end in verse 14, they made them ruthlessly work as slaves. Why were the people being oppressed? The people were being oppressed because of the presence of God in their lives. Now, why does that matter today? Because church, we're going to face oppression by simply our identity in Christ. And there's some people in this world that they're willing to follow after Jesus and they're willing to carry their Bible and they're willing to pray to God and they're willing to do all that. It's just they do not want to have any opposition in this life. And yet you go in the New Testament in places like John 15 and elsewhere and and Jesus tells his disciples, you are going to have oppression. You will be opposed. You will be persecuted because of who you are. And yet, we forget that part of being set apart for the things of God is understanding that we will be opposed by the things of this world. So he tells them, we see this picture. We have the opportunity. We are not right in the middle of it. We have the opportunity from outside perspective. But we see God giving us this example. God giving us this principle. And as you and I come from the outside perspective, from the sky view, and we look down upon this passage, we understand that this rebellion, the reason that they are being enslaved, the reason why they are being opposed is because who they represent. And I want you to understand and I want you to see this because this is something that We too quickly pass over. Opposition then reveals a narrative. Now narrative is just a word talking about the story. It's talking about the plot line. It's talking about the purpose in something. And many times we just kind of look at the surface and say, well, they just don't want me to pray in school. No. No, it's not because they don't want you to pray in school. That is the surface. The reason why they don't want you to pray in school is because there's a narrative that we're going to take God out of the equation. Well, they don't want me to talk about Jesus in my workplace. Okay, that might be the surface issue, but deep down in, the narrative is, as they don't want to make people feel uncomfortable or be reminded that there is a God. There's always a narrative at play in all the opposition that we face. 
And sometimes we don't ever think, and sometimes we don't ever consider. Sometimes we just say, well, they don't want me to do that, or I'm facing opposition here, or I'm facing opposition there. And sometimes we miss that there is a narrative at play in everything around us. So the narrative that we see at play here in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8 through 14, the narrative is, is Pharaoh says, I don't want to have any authority over me. And this God deal cannot happen. And these people that represent God, and these people that point people to God, and these people that are manifest the blessing of God, they have got to go away because I do not want to have any other being that I'm in competition for authority. And whether it's your workplace or whether it's your family or whether it's the culture around you, there's always a narrative at play of why they are opposing you. boys right now in the middle of a basketball league. I enjoy watching college basketball. Some other basketballs I tolerate. But if you think about a basketball game and you've got the five players on the offense and you have the five players on the defense... Inevitably, there's always some players, whether they are currently playing on offense or currently playing on defense, that don't get a lot of attention, right? Okay, So you have some players that they look at and go, that person is a threat. I am going to watch that person. And there's some people that you look at, and no offense to those people, but you look at them and go, I'm not that worried about them. I'm not that concerned about them. And so as those players start playing basketball, depending upon... Depending upon their ability, depending upon their initiative, depending upon what they identify as depends on how people respond to them, right? And so sometimes in this Christian life, we just say, well, I don't want to catch a lot of attention. I don't want to catch a lot of spotlight. I don't want to catch a lot of flag. I'll just be an anonymous Christian. I'll just come over here. I'll be a quiet Christian. I won't say anything about the things of God. I won't raise, my mind, raise up my voice about the things that are right for God. I won't say anything about the kingdom. I'll just sit over here and think that I'm just going to go through this Christian life minding my own business. You don't have permission, biblically, to be a silent observer. But then there's other people over here, and these individuals over here, they are bombastic. They are annoying. They are aggravating. And they're just over here just wanting people to listen to them. And they're just blah, 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 blah. And people don't listen to them because they just tune them out as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And the idea is that we are just supposed to be over here Saying, I'm not here to try to get attention to myself, but I'm also not here to just go through this life unscathed. Because I know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm doing what God has called me to do, I realize that I'm going to find opposition. And yet when that opposition comes, I do not have to be surprised that this opposition comes. Because I know this opposition is not more because of who I am, but because of whose I and he reminds them that they will oppose us if we are set apart for the things of God. And husband or wife or child or grandparent or aunt or uncle, when you find this opposition, know there's always a narrative behind the opposition. But then there's another way that this world sets us apart. Verse 15 says, Then the king and the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. So their opposition didn't work. 
I'm going to try to slow them down. I'm going to try to weed them out. I'm going to keep them from multiplying. I'm going to keep them from expanding. I will keep them from growing. I will keep them from talking. I will oppress them and I will oppose them. And that will snuff out my threat or my concern from them. But the opposition didn't work. So then you go to the next stage. Verse 15. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other one was named Puah. And when you serve, he says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. Just don't think that word fully encapsulates the entire communication of the text. The women are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And when Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You may say, well, what a strange text talking about how they compel us. Well, what was Pharaoh's aim? Pharaoh's aim was is to diminish the population. He was to diminish the number of Jews living in the land because every Jew represented the presence of God. And so the goal was is I want to limit, I want to shrink, I want to Take the Jewish people and the presence of God away from me. But when he came to opposition and he tried to enslave them, that didn't work. So the next step that Pharaoh had, that the king of Egypt had, is then I will compel them. And how does he do that? He then goes to the midwives and says, all right, midwives, here's what I want you to do. Selective breeding. They do this in livestock all the time. Some of you individuals in this room, you don't have better homes and gardens on your coffee table. You have some type of a genetics catalog on your coffee table. And in that thing, it'll tell you about the males and their pedigrees and all these, all these names and all these numbers and all these things that add up that you're looking at that I like him or I don't like him or I think I can use him and her. And you do all of this line breeding. Has anybody ever heard of the name Margaret Sanger? So Margaret Sanger was a woman that lived a couple of generations ago. And she said, you know what, if we can do that with animals, we can do that with people. She was considered one of the founders and one of the first individuals that introduced the concept of eugenics. And the idea of eugenics was is that you could breed for preferred traits. She, she took Charles Darwin's idea of evolution and of survival of the fittest, and she said what we can do is that we can use these principles to then breed humans to get a superior or to get a preferred race. And so eugenics was really the birth of abortion. And through the act of abortion, they were using that to selectively weed out the genetics they didn't want. It was this opposition that then led to people being compelled. 
And what the case is here in this passage in Exodus is the king of Egypt says, you know what? I do not like all of these Jewish males running around here, so I have an idea. We will just kill them. And I put there in your notes that once you enter into a life of sin, sin does not value life. The king of Egypt, he did not value life. And then when you think about this whole idea of eugenics and abortion and all these things carrying on, none of this values life. But you may say, well, why in the world should we value life? Because God values life. Genesis 1 and 26 and 27, God says, I created man in the image of me. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And yet, the king of Egypt says, my oppression didn't work, so now I'm going to compel you. So he calls on them to kill the males. And the Hebrew wives did not submit to his word. Then he tells all the people there. You see that there in the last part of verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. So not only did he oppress them and say this is what I want you to do. But then he compels them and he says not just the Hebrew midwives. But then all the people of Egypt if you see a male Hebrew child be born kill it. So not only is he sinning himself. But now he's looking and saying, now everybody else is expected to participate in my sin. You see, it's one thing for us to set apart, be set apart, and to think, well, they can do that, but I don't have to do that. But there is coming a time when the world will come to you and I, and they will say, either you're going to participate, or you're going to be persecuted. Theo Hobbes, the British theologian that I've quoted to you numerous, many times, puts it like this. He talks about this revolution that takes place in morality. And he talks about that once was, what was once condemned is now celebrated. What was once celebrated is now condemned. And if you don't celebrate, you will be condemned. And that is where this culture is headed to. And that is where the society is headed to. That we will compel you. We will oppose you. And if the opposition does not then break you into compromise and capitulation, then we will compel you. And we will say, you're going to do what we want you to do. And if you do not do what we want you to do, then we will ridicule you. you will, we will mock you. We will make fun of you. And we will make it so difficult you will eventually, complete, you will eventually concede and practice our sin. Now, some people come to this passage here in Exodus chapter 1 and they say, So Spence, ha, see, now you have proof that lying is okay. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, well, if the Hebrew midwives can lie, then why can't I lie? You ever heard that conversation? You ever had that argument come? Well, didn't they lie? And isn't lie a sin? So how do we understand that they lied to Pharaoh, but that wasn't God? Bless them. It even says, so God dealt well with the midwives. So how do we understand this? A couple of things, then we'll bring this to a close. He, Pharaoh goes to the Hebrew midwives and says, kill the men. But the Hebrew midwives knew that even if Pharaoh was giving them the order, they first had to obey God. They first had to obey God. In fact, it says there in the verse, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Well, they were told to do that, yes. But just because somebody commands you to sin doesn't mean you have to sin. 
When we are commanded, when we are called, when we are compelled to do things that violates our obedience to God, brothers and sisters, we are never commanded to sin. Why? Because our values reveal our faith. Our values reveal our faith. So it says there in verse 17, the midwives, they didn't do what Pharaoh told them because they feared God. Because they feared God. It takes us back to Corey Tinboom. And if you ever think about the movie or the documentary called The Hiding Place. And in there, Corey Tinboom and her family, they're hiding the Jews that are being sought by the Germans for extermination. And so they had these places where they would hide these Jews. The Germans would come in. Do you have any Jews in here? And Corey Tinboom and her family would say, no, we have no Jews in here. And the Germans would search all through the house trying to find the secret hiding place. Why would they do that? Because they valued life because God valued life. Because they feared God because God called them to fear Him. Their values reveal their faith and they are willing to follow after God. They're willing to serve after God and they're willing to be obedient to God no matter what it costs them. Their values reveal their faith. And so, so then the Egyptian Pharaoh comes in and says, why did you do that? And what did the lady say? Because the women give birth to fast. What were they doing? They were reflecting God's values. They were reflecting God's word. And when it comes to the sin in the life, and when it comes to the the ways of this world, the values of God will come into increasing conflict with the values of this world. Because right now, this world wants to value prosperity. And this world wants to value identity. And this world wants to value independent thinking. And this world wants to value everybody getting to decide what is truth. This world wants to value relativism. And yet the values of God says, no, we do have an authority. And this authority has revealed himself to us. And this authority then calls on us to fear him. And this authority says, you know what? Even though the world may try to compress you, and even though this world may try to compel you, you can follow me because I am God. And so these Hebrew midwives are sitting there, and they were being compelled by Pharaoh. Sin, devalue life, work against the things of God. And the women said, no. Because of their fear for God. So not only do their values reveal faith, but their choices reveal fear. Because they chose to submit to God more so than submitting to Pharaoh. And because of their faith, they chose to fear God more than the leadership of Egypt. Now the time is coming. And for some, the time is already here. Where we will be compelled to submit to the culture. It's already happening on a small scale, especially within the workplaces. Because there's some of you in this room, and there's some of you that have heard, and there's some that you can, can say from the past that you get a job. And the job says, okay, this is, the, this is the parameters, and this is what the expectations are of the job. And you get the job, and you're like, great, great, great. And then just a little bit into the job, when you need the job, and you have a place for the money that comes from the job, and then the job comes to you and say, oh yeah, we're switching your schedule. Well, I've got this responsibility and that responsibility. Well, you don't anymore because your schedule has been switched. And we're compelled. Some of you parents that have children in the public school system, you're being compelled 
to acquiesce to the godless ideologies and socialistic practices that are being taught in public school. Because how dare you push back? How dare you object? You're just one of those Jesus freaks. It's not that big of a deal. You're being compelled. It's happening in our society. Yesterday, we were down at the Home and Garden show. You would think in the middle of Oklahoma City, the Home and Garden show, you would think it would be a pretty safe place. And yet, we made it to the end of this aisle, and we turned a corner, and there was a biological male that very, very loudly wanted people to know that he did not identify as a biological male. Understand what I'm saying? The shirt, the makeup, the nail polish, the voice, the whole, the whole, the whole image. Now, if I had looked at that individual and says, God loves you and God made you in a particular way, I would have been kicked out. Why? Because I'm being compelled to compromise. I am being compelled to go along. I am being compelled to just get with it. And that is the danger of the sin around us. And that is the reality of what we know it means to be set apart. So you come here to this passage in Exodus chapter 1 and we understand that you will set yourself apart or this world will set you apart. And how will this world set us apart? They will set us apart by opposing us. And then if that doesn't work, they will set us apart by compelling us. And part of my opportunity and part of my responsibility of serving in this church is to make sure that we understand what it costs to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what it means to be someone that holds up this Bible and says, this is my authority. Because brothers and sisters, the time will come and the time is already here when this world and sin and darkness and those that are godless and those that want to have nothing to do with submission to God, His kingdom or His will, they will come in and they will oppose us. And it might seem innocent, it might seem benign, and it might be something that you may think is a one-off that won't happen again, but they will oppose us. And they will not oppose us because of the color of your hair. And they will not oppose us because of what kind of clothes you wear. They will not oppose you because what kind of soft you drink or what kind of vehicle you drive, they will oppose you because the presence of God in your life. Amen. That's right. And when they oppose us because the presence of God in our lives, we have two choices. Either I can retreat and even though I can go hide and either I can go and say, oh, I'm sorry, I won't bring that up in public. Or we can say, no, because of the fear of God, I am going to be faithful to God. And then when they try to oppose us and that doesn't work, then they will come in and say, now we will compel you. Either you do this or you will be in trouble. You do this or we will come down upon you. You do this or you will be outcast from the community. And they will compel us. And the question is, is what are we going to do? So how do we leave set apart? Bottom part of your notes. First thing is we need repair, we need to prepare to respond. Prepare to respond. There are so many instances and circumstances in our life that catch us flat-footed. 
situations that come up, problems that come up, circumstances that come up. When I was in Kansas City two weeks ago, there was a pastor that was in Kansas City there at the class, and he was talking about being in a counseling situation and having a mother and a daughter come into the counseling room and looking at the teenage daughter, and the daughter looks at him and says, I, my mama says I need to come in and see you because I identify as a demisexual. Demisexual. Now, I'm just going to take it by the appearance of most of your faces over the age of 20. You have no idea what I just said. You got the second part, but you're lost in the first part. I know. And that's what that pastor was saying. He is saying there are things that are happening in our schools. There are things that are happening in this early generation. There are things that are happening in these young adults that is going on, and us older adults are completely oblivious, and then we have no way, we have no ability to respond to those problems because we don't know what they're saying. Why? Because we're not prepared to respond. We just assume it's not happening in our house. We just assume it's not happening in our community. We just assume it's not happening in this church. We're not prepared to respond. So when the opposition comes, we fold. When they come to compel us, we run. We find all kinds of excuses and we hide behind saying, well, I tried. And we have all of these ways of trying to shift the responsibility. But we have God's word. And God gives us an example here in Exodus chapter 1 that if they will come for the Hebrews, they will come for the Welstonites. If they will come for the people of the Jewish nation, they will come for the people of the new covenant generation. If they came for them then, they will come, they will come for us now. So we can prepare to respond. But the second exhortation I would give you in a way of how do we live set apart is to read the whole story. Read the whole story. See, if you just read here at the last part of Exodus chapter 1 and you just stop right here and be like, well, that really stinks. Poor, pitiful people. Oh, God is so mean. God is just a big meanie. How could God do that? Why would God allow to do that? And we would just stop right there and think, oh, man, pain, agony, misery. Oh, my. Oh, it couldn't get any worse. And yet, if you scroll through a few more pages of Exodus, you see the people being fed by God Led by God, directed by God, loved by God, and blessed by God. We need to read the whole story. Oh, so what about past the book of Exodus, Spence? Get back to your Bible and look and say that even through all the course of this life, the God's people still win. We need to read the whole story. And yet sometimes we get caught up in our little sliver of life, our little sliver of 20, 30, 50, 80 years, and we think this is all there is, and we don't read the whole story, what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do. Amen. We don't see the whole story. Amen. I was like 14 years old. My family went snow skiing at Wolf Creek Pass. We were out snow skiing one day, and uh, the McConnell family, everything's a competition. I mean, we're folding socks. It's a competition, okay? So everything's a competition. So we're out there that one particular day, and Tucker, the brother right below me, um, we're out there skiing. So if I'm 14, he's going to be 12 or 13. And so I mean, it's, everything's, everything's a competition. And so if you are very, and I don't know, I've never been, I haven't been snow skiing a lot, but 
couple places I've been, you got the slopes, and then sometimes kind of zigzagging through the slopes will be these trails, and they're usually built wider, and they're usually built a little more level, but I think it's where they make their travels back and forth through, and so if you're coming down this slope, you'll kind of have a, a span where the slope is going, and then it'll kind of level off, or those roads zigzag down the, the, the face of the hillside, or down the face of the mountain, and so Tucker and I were on this, on this portion of this slope, and it had to have been like a triple black diamond, I think. Something pretty gnarly for sure, at least a triple black diamond. Anyway, so we're coming down this slope, and all I can see is white snow. What that means is ski straight, poles tucked back, get down in that position, and we're racing, okay? So you're racing as hard and as fast to get down to the bottom of the hill to see who can win. So we take off, and for whatever reason, Tucker's a little bit more aerodynamic than I am, and so he takes off, and he is probably a good 50 yards in front of me, which, when you're skiing, you can't speed up. I mean, it's not like you can swim faster. It's not like you can run faster. You're just stuck, okay? So I'm chasing after Tucker, and I'm like, I've got to chase him. I've got to chase him. We hit this little flat spot. Tucker goes off over the other end of the road, and all the sea is just a puff of snow. Now, you would think at this point, somebody would say, he's going, snow, wreck, stop, no. <laughs> because puff of snow, wreck, stop, me, go, win. <laughs> we tracking? We tracking where I'm at? Okay. So this is what I'm thinking. So I'm thinking, I'm going to crest over that little flat side of the road. I'm going to crest. There'll be the next hillside. He's going to be wiped out for whatever reason. Ha! And I'm going to keep on going, and I win. And so I hit that flat spar, and I'm getting excited. And I think to myself, you know, puff of smoke or puff of snow, wreck. I should stop. Check on him. Not today. Move. I come over that hillside. It's about 250 yards is nothing but moguls. Now, some of you know what I'm saying, and some of you don't know what I'm saying. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm saying, let me try to explain to you the best I can do to imagine moguls. It's like goosebumps on your skin, right? So, like, how, if you, hopefully you can identify, like, the goosebumps. So, it's like the entire slope had goosebumps. And these goosebumps were about three foot tall, and they, they were about as tall as they were wide, and it was just like you had goosebumps all down this slope for about two to 300 yards, now, the idea is that you're a lot better skier than me, and you get on there, and you just, you, 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 just, you just navigate right down through there. When you're at Mach 5, trying to beat your brother to the end of the slope, skis straight, go fast, and then you come to the moguls, I don't know exactly what happened. It got pretty fuzzy. I'm, I'm serious. It, it, got, it got kind of fuzzy. Let me tell you what happened when everything started clearing back up. My poles were scattered. Both skis had been removed from my feet. My goggles were broken half. My nose was bleeding. I was bleeding from my mouth. And it felt like you took a softball, put it at the end of a set of pantyhose, and just went to wearing me out. Tucker's fine. He didn't help me get my skis. I got my own skis, got down, got cleaned up, bought a new set of goggles. We go back again. What's my point of telling you this? Because there's going to come times in your life that you're going to hit the moguls. 
There's going to come time in your life that you're just going to be going through life so fast that you're running too fast to even think about slowing down. And there's going to become times in your life that you're going so fast and you're moving so quickly and God's going to say, slow down and listen to me. Slow down and pay attention to me. Slow down and think about me. And you and I are going to say, God, we have no time. We have no time. See, Jim over there, he's got a bigger house. He's got a better job. He's making more money. He looks like he's happier. Everything on social media says he's doing better than me. I've got to beat him. And then you got Bill over there and Bill is beating you up the corporate ladder and Bill is beating you at sales and Bill is beating you here. And you're thinking to yourself, I've got to beat him. And even though you see problems in marriages, even though you see problems in families, you don't pay attention because all you're thinking about is getting to the end of the race. And God says, slow down. And God says, wait. God says, listen. And we never have time. And then we hit the moguls of life, and it may be a sickness. It may be a conflict in your home. It may be a problem at work, and all of a sudden they decide they're going to downsize. It may be something personally. It may be something community. And we hit those moguls, and we fall apart. I'm coming down that hill. What I should have done is stop. Or at least slow down. But because I was too arrogant and too prideful in my life, I didn't even. I didn't even consider that I didn't know what was coming up in front of me. And sometimes in our lives, whether it's young people or whether it's us adults in this room, we get moving so fast through life, it doesn't even dawn on us that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We just assume we know what's going to take place. We just assume that we have control over tomorrow. We just think that we have the authority. And then whatever it is, I'll just muscle my will over tomorrow. And we never stop to think, I have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow. And maybe I should slow down today and say, God, you do. How does this tie into Exodus chapter 1? Because brothers and sisters, we are living at such a breakneck speed in our world today. That we are moving so past the reminders and the principles and the precepts of God. And God has said, be ready. Read the whole story. Slow down and understand that this world is opposed. Darkness is opposed to light, John chapter 3. Satan is is opposed to Jesus. And if you go back to the book of Revelation, you see that Satan is opposed to anybody that names the name of Christ. So not only are we an opposed people, but we're also a compelled people. And sometimes what Satan does, he gets you and I moving so fast and going so fast and living so hard that we don't even realize the the oppression and the compelling happening around us. So maybe you're here this morning. And it's not that you're in rank Sin. It's not that you found yourself going, oh, I'm just so vile and everybody would be aghast if they knew what was going on in my life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just not being sensitive to the opposition around you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've become more acquainted with yielding to the compelling voices than living in fear of God.
Or maybe you're headed down that ski slope. And all you're thinking about is beating your neighbor. And you don't realize you have no idea what's coming tomorrow. May I tell you this morning, there is somebody that knows what's coming tomorrow. And there's somebody that has revealed himself to you and I to his word, through his word. And there is somebody that you and I can spend today being prepared to be faithful for tomorrow. I wonder how many of you in this room need to stop and listen to God. Bow your heads with me.